Hey there, welcome to Tea with Mara. Thanks for seeking out these recordings and listening. My name is George, or you may know me in the metaverse as Kiyoki from Together with Trip. These recordings are from my live sessions in virtual reality and may sometimes feature other content. For the best experience of these sessions, you can join me in virtual reality. But when you can't, or if you want to go back and listen again, these audio or video recordings will be offered freely to all. To join us in VR or for the live broadcast on our Discord server, you can find our full schedule of events by visiting trip.com events, including instructions on how to join us in VR. You can even join in 2D mode from a computer. If you wish to support my teachings and these recordings, the best way to do that is to leave a review and share this podcast with others. And if you find value in them and you want to, you can make a donation offering right through the Two Hands Sangha website or soon through the podcast itself. All links should be found in the show notes. Now let's invite the bell and begin. Good evening and welcome to Two Hands Sangha, January 21st, 2024. Thanks for being here and tuning in or listening or watching later on, whatever the case may be. And hopefully the volumes, yeah, it looks like it's good. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I received something that I ordered online. I'm kind of a nerd and a comic book kind of guy, and I'm into all sorts of things like that, and um, or at least I was when I was younger. And for some reason, you know, I have a lot of like hobbies and interests, and and for some reason, I'm a sucker for when those things kind of overlap in life and uh, cross over in some way. When I was a kid, and I collected comic books, I used to love it whenever there was. Uh, the comic book companies, Marvel and DC or something would do crossovers and you'd get to see your favorite characters that were not part of those worlds go against each other. And uh, so there was like Batman versus Captain America and stuff like that. And one of my all-time favorites was Batman versus Grendel. But I don't know if it's because of that or just that's incidental, but I love when my areas of interest kind of overlap. And as such, I'm a complete sucker for any kind of Buddhist statue, Buddha statue, uh, that is also a character from like Star Wars or something like that. Um, so at home on my desk or on one of my altars, I have, uh, I have Buddha statue that has the helmet of Boba Fett. Um, I have, you know, like a skeleton that's meditating, which I, I really love that one because it reminds me of impermanence and, uh, and you know, that life is short. And, and then uh, while I was in VR one day playing a game, it got broken and the head broke off. So now it's even more representative of impermanence to me. I just put the head in his lap and, you know, that's that. And so, and, and you know, from, from having been here for years that we, we've had many different Buddhist statues and they've gotten broken or different things happen and we just keep right on using them because uh, we're not worshiping a statue you know where uh, uh if anything when a statue breaks it's an it's a nice way of recognizing that everything is impermanent so i also have a homer simpson meditating on a donut instead of a lotus <laughs> and what i ordered that i got a couple of weeks ago was something that 
really pleased me a lot from my childhood, which was, uh, I don't, and nobody may even know what this is, but there was a character called Ultraman that I loved when I was a kid. And he's sort of like in the Godzilla era of things, the, the rubber suit Japanese shows, you know. And I found online, actually, I saw Brad Warner online had had gotten one for Christmas, and I was like, I'm going to have one immediately. So um, I got myself an Ultraman Buddha statue, and I was so happy. And as a bonus, you know, he's holding one hand up. You know, Buddha statues usually have mudras or hand gestures or different things like that. And in this one, the, the Buddhas hold the, the Ultraman Buddha is holding up a peace sign with this hand and the other hand, which is normally held palms outward in front of his legs, you know, facing down is flipping a bird. So it's like even more irreverent, which I like, but, um, but I, I really loved it. And, uh, I got that in this morning, I was at a loss as to what I wanted to talk about tonight. And I was sitting at my desk and I was staring at my, you know, sort of like, uh, sort of like staring at a blank page, but it was my desk I was staring at. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, what do I want to talk about tonight? And I was really kind of trying to spin, as I mentioned earlier, something off of a topic that carried from this week, but it wasn't coming to me. And I was sitting there looking at that statue and I started smiling because he was flipping me off. And, um, and I thought, you know, how often we say that the Buddha said, not to build statues in honor of him, but instead he suggested that we practice what he taught. And, you know, suggesting that he was against statues, which isn't exactly true. He did allegedly say that a great way to pay homage to him was to practice what he taught. But he didn't explicitly say, don't build statues that I'm aware of. I couldn't find any proof of that in the Pali Canon. And you hear all the time, though, that he did. And I, I can't find any proof of it. And I find a lot of people saying that it, it, he didn't say that. The truth is we don't know because we don't know what the Buddha said. We only know what we think he said. We know what those intelligent monks wrote down 500 years after he died. Um, but people sometimes assume that he was against any sort of worship to objects or even to him. And I guess if we could ask him today, he would probably say, yes, that's right. But it wasn't explicitly stated. Uh, and it, that's because it really wasn't an issue in his time. They just didn't do that. It wasn't, they didn't build statues to, to men like him in, in his time. Western teachers, myself included, have been guilty of sort of perpetuating this idea that he said not to build statues for him. When really what he said was a little different than that. People didn't even start building statues in honor of the Buddha for hundreds of years after his death, his Parinibbana. Um, and instead, what, what represented the Dharma that they would, they would look at or use for inspiration, because that's how we use the Buddha statue is as inspiration, right? And uh, sort of as reverence or to pay appreciation to the practice. And the things that they use are, and they're still using today is the Dharma wheel. You, you might see that somewhere. Um, very common in his day was more of the footprint of the Buddha. There's this, if you, if you do, it's one of my favorite things too, is these places in the world, they're all over the world where you can go and you'll see they have some uh, thousands of year old 
footprint that's in in stone and it was obviously made that way it's not a real footprint um but it'll have a flower in in the middle of the footprint indicating there's a story about him when he was born he took steps and flowers bloomed wherever he walked and all of that so you know we also mostly don't believe that that was true of course but uh depends on who you ask <laughs> um so all of that stuff tonight kind of had me thinking about Buddhist statues and idol worship and all of those things. And I thought that we might look into a sutta called the Dhammasatya Sutta, Dhammachetya Sutta, from the Majjhima Nikaya. It's, it's uh, Majjhima Nikaya 89. And we'll get as close as we could, perhaps, to what he said on the topic. Uh, of actually worshiping him. The name of the sutta is a compound word that obviously means dhamma, dharma, um, you know, reality or truth or teachings. And then chetya, which is something like shrine or stupa. Um, so it's the title, dhamma chetya sutta, means the teaching of the, of the monuments to the dharma or shrines to the dharma. And this is a great topic because it's one of the most common questions that I get asked as a teacher is, do Buddhists worship the Buddha or do Buddhists worship the Buddha statue or something along those lines, some variation? And the short answer is no. So it's like, nope, thanks for coming to my TED Talk and we're done. But, but we'll go further than that. <laughs> so the sutta, I'm going to read to you and I'll comment on it throughout as we do sometimes. Starts out like all suttas. It says, Thus I have heard. At one time, the Buddha was staying in the land of the Sakyans uh, near the Sakyan town named Medalumpa, which always makes me think of Oompa Loompas. But um, at that time, King Pasanadi of Kosala had arrived at the town on some business. And he addressed uh, his general, who was named Digga Karyana. He, he said, my good Karyana, harness the finest chariots. We will go to a park and see the scenery. And the, the general says, yes, your majesty. And he harnesses up the chariots and informs the king, sire, the finest chariots are harnessed. We may go at your convenience. And the king mounts his carriage and along with other fine carriages, they set out at a full royal pomp from the town, uh, heading for the parks, heading for the park grounds. He went by carriage as far as the terrain would allow, and then he descended and entered the park on foot. As he was going for a walk in the park, he saw the roots of trees that were impressive. Uh, so big, giant trees with big areas at the base. And inspiring, quite quiet and still, far from the noisy crowd, remote from human settlements and fit for retreat. The sight reminded him right away of the Buddha. These roots of trees, so impressive and inspiring, are like those where we used to pay homage to the Blessed One, meaning the Buddha, the perfected one, the fully awakened one. He said to his charioteer, these roots of trees, so impressive and inspiring, are like how we used to pay homage to the Blessed One, the perfected one, the fully awakened Buddha. And so right there is kind of the point, the, the very first point of the sutta, right at the beginning, which is that um, they didn't pay homage to the Buddha using statues or using anything else like that. They paid homage to the Buddha by sitting and meditating at the root of a tree. 
And so meditating at the root of a tree was how they paid homage. And that's, that's kind of the point right up front. Um, so he says, my good Karyana, uh, where is, where is that Buddha at present? Where is the, the blessed one at present? And he says, great King, there is a Sakyan town nearby named Metalumpa. And that's where the Buddha is now staying. And I know you're probably also thinking about Lumpas now too. But he says, that is where the Buddha is now staying. He says, how far away is that town? Not far, King. And he says, we can leave now and be there uh, while it's still light. It's three leagues away. And he says, well, then harness the chariots and we shall go to see the Buddha right away. So he, he goes and uh, sees these beautiful you know, spaces to sit and meditate. And it makes him think of the Buddha. And then he thinks, well, heck, I can go see the Buddha. Let's go see him. And they, he kind of decides on a whim. He's like, road trip. And then they're, they're off to see the Buddha. And so he says, well, then harness the chariots and let's go. And he says, yes, your majesty. And he harnesses the chariots again. He informs the king, sir, the chariots are ready. We may leave at your convenience again. And then they mount the carriages and they set out for the town of Metalumpa. He reached the town while it was still light and he heads for the park grounds. And the park is where the Buddha stayed. Um, you can imagine just a nice, quiet, clean forest. And he went by carriage as far as the terrain would allow. And then he descended and entered the monastery on foot, the park on foot. At that time, several mendicants, meaning the monks, were walking mindfully in the open air, meaning everywhere he looked, he could see monks walking here and there, doing just as we did tonight, walking meditation. He could see these monks were all walking mindfully uh, all around, and they looked very happy. And so King Pasanadi of Kosala went up to the monks and said, Sirs, where is the blessed one at present? the perfected one, the fully awakened one. I want to see him. The great king, or they say great king, that's his dwelling over there with the door closed. Approach it quietly without hurrying. Go on to the porch and clear your throat and then knock on the door with the latch. The Buddha will open the door. So that was, that was the custom. Anytime they went into a room, if the door was closed, they would clear their throat before entering the room to let somebody know they were coming in so you didn't startle anybody or have accidents or anything like that. The king right away presented his sword and his turban and his emblem to the charioteer, all of his stuff to the charioteer, uh, who thought, now the king seeks privacy. I should wait here. And the king approached the Buddha's dwelling, cleared his throat, knocked, and the Buddha opened the door. King Pasanadi entered the dwelling and bowed his head at the Buddha's feet, caressing his feet, covering them with kisses, and pronounced his name. Sir, I am King Pasanadi of Kosala. I am King Pasanadi of Kosala. And the Buddha is kind of like, hmm. And he says, great king, for what reason? Now, they're old friends, by the way. He says, great king, for what reason do you de demonstrate such utmost devotion for this body? Meaning, you know, he, he says for this body, not for me, because he's not enforcing a sense of self. He's enforcing the fact that this body is just a body, you know, and he says, why do you, why are you worshiping this body and why are you conveying your manifest love? And he says, sir, I infer about the Buddha from the teachings. The blessed one has been fully awakened. His teachings are well explained. 
and the Sangha or community is practicing well. It happens, sir, that I see some ascetics and Brahmins leading the spiritual life. Ascetics are uh, practitioners or monks or, or holy men, and Brahmins is another way of saying the same thing. Is, could mean a holy person in any faith. Um, and he says, sir, it happens that I see some of these spiritual men who are spiritual only for a limited time in their life, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or maybe 40 years. Sometime later, you see them again, and they are ba nicely bathed and anointed, dressed well with hair and beard dressed. They amuse themselves, supplied and provided with the five kinds of sensual stimulation, eyes, ears, nose, and all of that. Uh, but here I see the mendicants or monks leading the spiritual life entirely full and pure as long as they live to their last breath, meaning they never quit practicing. They always are devoted to this practice. I don't see any other spiritual life anywhere so full and so pure. That's why I infer about the Buddha from his, about the Buddha from his teachings. So for, you know, first of all, on that, the Buddha is saying, you know, hey, you don't need to be worshiping my feet, kissing my feet. What are you doing? And, and second, he's pointing to the fact that, you know, he's not reinforcing a self. He doesn't think of himself in any special way. And he's saying you shouldn't either. Uh, and the king is pointing to the fact that he's never seen a practice that has worked so well that people stick with. Um, so he goes on, it goes on, it says, the blessed one is a fully awakened Buddha. The teaching is well explained. The Sangha is practicing well. And this gets repeated frequently. Furthermore, kings fight with kings, aristocrats fight with aristocrats, Brahmins or monks fight with Brahmins or holy men fight with holy men, householders fight with other householders, a mother fights with her child, a child with her mother, father with child and child with father, brother fights with brother, brother with sister, sister with brother, and friends fight with friends. But here I see mendicants who live in harmony, appreciating each other without quarreling, uh, blending like milk and water and regarding each other with kindly eyes. I don't see any other assembly elsewhere that is so harmonious. Again, pointing to the fact that this practice seems to lead to true happiness here in this lifetime and that they're living it and they're, they're the living, walking embodiment of this practice. So he says, I infer this about the Buddha from the teaching. The Blessed One is fully awakened. The teaching is well explained and the Sangha is practicing well. Furthermore, I have walked and wandered from monastery to monastery, from park to park. I have seen some ascetics and Brahmins who are thin, haggard, pale, and veiny. Hardly a captivating sight, you'd think. And it occurred to me, clearly these venerables lead the spiritual life dissatisfied or they are hiding some bad deed that they've done. That's why they're thin, haggard, pale, veiny, and hardly a captivating sight. I went up to those venerables and said, why are you so thin, haggard, pale, and veiny? Hardly a captivating sight. And they say, we have jaundice, great king, but I see many mendicants here who are always smiling and joyful, obviously happy with cheerful faces, living relaxed, unruffled, and surviving on charity, their hearts free as a wild deer. And it occurred to me, clearly these venerables have realized a higher distinction in the Buddha's instructions than they had before. And so, and he says, that's why they're smiling. And he goes on and repeats that whole thing. So he's saying that 
the monks that have been learning with the Buddha have learned something that some other monks haven't, and and that they're truly happy in this practice. Whereas some 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 of the monks are just going through the motions and not doing too hot with it. So he's pointing to the fact that that uh, you can still practice these things and not do well, and that really dedicating yourself to the practice is uh, is leads to, to happiness. Another really important part of that section is happiness. There's this uh, myth that monks aren't supposed to be happy. They're supposed to be really serious or, or, or steadfast, you know, and um, and I get why, but all the monks, I've, all the monastics, I should say, that I've ever met, monks and nuns alike, they're always very happy. And, and it hasn't always been that way. You know, sometimes they're, they are quite serious, especially in certain countries. Um, but uh, in the time of the Buddha, his, his practitioners who were really doing well were very happy. And, the, and the, all throughout the Pali Canon, it talks about monks smiling and joyous and happy. And um, so if you see these like super serious monks, they may not be doing what they're supposed to do is kind of the point here. And it's a reminder that we can do this practice and that it should be joyful. It should be very uplifting and happy and all of that. And if you're not acquiring that kind of happiness, then there's work to be done, I guess. So he goes on and he says, I infer this about the Buddha, goes through the three things again. He says, furthermore, as an anointed aristocratic king, I am in the position to execute men, fine men or banish men who are guilty. Yet when I'm sitting in judgment, they interrupt me. And I can get I can't get them to stop interrupting me and wait until I finish speaking. But there have been here mendicants while the Buddha is teaching an assembly of many hundreds of men. And where they were, there's about 1300 monastics in this community. Um, and he says there there is no sound of his disciples coughing or clearing their throats. Um, once it so happened that the Buddha was teaching an assembly of many hundreds and one of them cleared his throat and one of their spiritual companions nudged them with their knee to indicate hush venerable don't make a sound our teacher the blessed one is teaching and it's not you know i don't want that to come across sounding like you're not supposed to speak when the teacher is is teaching although that is polite and respectful to to do during dharma talks to not talk or not make noise uh, so that everybody can hear but it's not any kind of reverence for the the teacher it's more a reverence for the teaching it's more um being quiet so that you can hear the teachings of the dharma not being quiet because that person on the podium deserves to be heard or or whatever although in the buddha's time of course he he was somebody who deserved to be heard but that's not what the point of the teaching was um he says so so you know i i've noticed how incredible and how amazing and how he can hold an assembly and they they are so well trained without rod or sword. In other words, there's no uh, physical force or discipline that's that's keeping them in line and keeping them quiet. It's all done uh, by respect for the teachings, you know, and respect for the teacher. So the point being monastics are respectful to the teacher and the teaching. And he goes on again, he says, so I infer this about the Buddha and the teachings. The Blessed One is fully awakened. The Buddha, the teaching is well explained. The Sangha is practicing well. 
And he says, furthermore, I've seen some clever aristocrats who are subtle, accomplished in the doctrines of others, hair splitters. You'd think they live to demolish convictions with their intellect. They hear, so gentlemen, that ascetic Gotama, which is the Buddha, will come down to such and such village or town. They formulate a question for the Buddha, thinking we'll approach the ascetic Gautama and ask him this question. If he answers like this, we'll refute him like that. And if he answers like that, we'll refute him like this. When they hear this, that he has come to town, they, they approach him. The Buddha educates, encourages, fires up, and inspires them with a Dharma talk. They don't even get around to asking the question to the Buddha. So how could they refute his answer? And so it goes on, it says, invariably they become his disciples. So he goes on and repeats all the stuff again. So that one, he's talking about how these, these men that go, go to the Buddha with the intention of discrediting him or making him look foolish or asking questions that are dumb, you know, or, or whatever, they never even ask the question because they listen to him and they're so fired up and excited by what they hear. They lose the question and they get interested in the Dharma instead. And, and I know what that's like as well, because uh, I've been at places with great teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh and, and I, I've had the opportunity to ask a question and I could never think of a question to ask. And I'm a Dharma nerd with lots of questions, but I can never think of one to ask when the time comes. Somewhere early on, I learned this thing of like, you shouldn't ask a, a question that's not worthy of the teacher. In other words, you don't say, you know, how do I, how do, I don't know, you, I can't think of a question right now that would be a dumb question to ask, but that you shouldn't ask a question not worthy of the teacher. This is your one time to talk to the Buddha or whatever great teacher it is. Ask something that's meaningful and that's going to help your practice and, and use that time wisely, in other words. And, uh, and when I've had chances like that, I couldn't think of a question that, was, that mattered enough that I should use up time that somebody else might have a greater question. Um, so that's kind of what he's talking about here. And so he goes through, you know, the, I've inferred this from the teachings. The Blessed One is fully awakened, the Buddha. The teachings are well explained. The Sangha is practicing well. And he says, furthermore, I see some clever Brahmins, uh, some clever householders, even some clever ascetics who are subtle, accomplished in the doctrines of others, hair splitters, and they don't get around to asking those questions. So how should they refute his answer? Invariably, they ask the ascetic Gautama for the chance to go forth. And he gives them the going forth, meaning they ask to become monastics and he allows it. Soon after going forth, living withdrawn, diligent, keen, and resolute, they realize the supreme end of the spiritual path in, his, in this very lifetime, meaning nibbana or freedom from suffering or liberation or the deathless voidness, whatever you want to call it. Um, they achieve it in their lifetime, which is the goal, so to speak. And they live having achieved their own insight, the goal, uh, for which gentlemen rightly go forth from the lay life to homelessness. They say, we were almost lost, we almost perished, for we used to claim that we were ascetics, Brahmins, and perfected ones, but we were none of those things. Now we really are ascetics, Brahmins, and perfected ones. So I infer this about the Buddha from the teaching, the Blessed One is fully awakened, the teaching is well explained, and the Sangha is practicing well. Furthermore, these chamberlains, uh, Isadatta and Purana, uh, 
share my meals and my carriages. It's two men that work for him or with him. He says, I give them a livelihood and I bring them renown. And yet they don't show me the same level of devotion that they show to the Buddha. Once it so happened that while I was leading a military campaign and testing Isodata and Purana, uh, I took up residence in a cramped house. They spent much of the night discussing the teaching. Then they lay down with their heads toward where the Buddha was and their feet towards me. And it occurred to me, oh, how incredible, how amazing. These chamberlains share my meals and my carriages. I give them a livelihood. I bring them renown, and yet they don't show me the same level of devotion that they show to the Buddha. Clearly, these venerables have reached a higher distinction in the Buddha's instructions than they had before. So I infer this from the Buddha's teaching, and he goes through the whole thing again. So with that one, he's saying how um, uh, the, the, the custom, there's, there's a, an old Indian, it's not even a Buddhist custom, but there's an old Indian custom where when a teacher is speaking or anyone just out of respect, you don't point your feet at that teacher. You may have heard that if you go to like Buddhist, <laughs> you go to Buddhist, I do not care. You, you go to those things and, and you know, you're not supposed to point your feet, you know, you stick your feet out at, towards that person. And it's just a sign of respect in that culture at that time. And, and so even to this day, if you go to a monastery on a retreat or something, it's, it's nobody's going to say anything to you. Maybe at a Thich Nhat Hanh one they might have, but they'll do it very sweetly. But they'll, you know, they won't say anything. They'll just remind people that it's customary to sit a certain way or, or whatever. And that's usually with your feet not facing the teacher. Um, so here he's lamenting. He's like, I'm their boss. I pay their paycheck and they don't even give me respect. I could force them to do this and they don't do it. They won't do it. They put their head towards the Buddha. And uh, again, you know, wherever the Buddha was, that was the direction that they would face their beds. And, and that's just another way of saying that they're dedicated to him, not to money or things or, or whatever. And he says, uh, he says, furthermore, the Buddha is an aristocrat. And so am I. The Buddha was a prince who renounced his throne. And, uh, he says, the Buddha is an aristocrat. And so am I. The Buddha is Kosalan. And so am I. The Buddha is 80 years old, and so am I. Since this is so, it is proper for me to show the Buddha such utmost devotion and demonstrate such friendship. And so they're kind of, he's kind of wrapping up his talk, and he says, Well, now, venerable sir, I must go. I have many duties and much to do. And the Buddha says, Please, great king, go at your convenience. Then King Pasanadi gets up from his seat. He bows respectfully, circled the Buddha, as was a custom, keeping him on his right before leaving. Soon after the king had left, the Buddha addressed the mendicants, the monks of the Sangha. And he said, monks, before he got up and left, King Pasanadi spoke about shrines to the teaching, monuments to the teaching. Learn these shrines to the teaching well. Memorize these shrines to the teaching. Remember these shrines to the teaching. These shrines to the teaching, not the teacher, <laughs> these shrines to the teaching are beneficial, and they relate to the fundamentals of the spiritual life. That is what the Buddha said, and satisfied the monks approved of what the Buddha said. So he didn't say don't build a statue, but the whole, throughout the whole thing, he never referred to himself as the focus of, of these things. He referred to the teachings as the focus. Um, when he did refer to himself, 
he referred to it as this vile body, you know, this, this, uh, I don't think I mentioned that, but he kind of referred to it as like this, you know, gross bag of flesh, you know, um, which is a whole other teaching and teaching in Buddhism of not self and, and of impermanence and all of that says that, you know, these bodies that we worship usually sexually or whatever, they're just bones and flesh and, you know, pus and blood and all of those kinds of things. And so he re he's referring to that. He didn't say don't build a statue, but the whole sutta is about how to properly practice and all the benefits that we get from doing so. And it's not really important to this particular lesson, but it's interesting to note that according to the, in the commentaries about this story, um, that same day when he came in to see the Buddha, the king gave all of his royal rings and his crown and his, you know, all of his stuff. He gave it to his general before going into the monastery. And then he said, I'll be back, you know, and, uh, his general at some time earlier on in his reign uh, the king had ordered the execution of one of the one of the general's relatives for some infraction or whatever as he said during the sutta i have the power to execute men um and presumably the person would had done something deserving of that according to the laws or whatever so while he was in there hanging out with the buddha the general took his belongings and gave them to the king's son and the king's son killed his father and took over the king's position. And that day that he visited the Buddha was his last day. Uh, and uh, uh, and at least he got to spend his last day with his uh, friend, the Buddha. But so I, I mention this only because it kind of underscores the thing about how uh, ruling with force doesn't usually end well. Um, which applies to our society in a lot of different ways. You know, if you imprison people, if you uh, if you have police brutality or, you know, any of those kinds of things, then or just ruling class or whatever, inequality, things like that. Those things, if you take advantage of that, it's not usually going to end well for you. So it's that story, while it's really not part of the, the, the sutta, it underscores the importance of leadership and in, in kindness and love. So anyhow, those moments uh, where he, he referred to all those different monuments of the Dhamma, the Buddha told the monks, said, learn these, master these, and remember these. And those things were respect, friendship, discipline without the use of force, discipline through respect for the teachings, through ardent practice, uh, through happiness or also happiness. And by and also sticking with practice and being dedicated to the practice itself, among other things. So not to monuments or stupas or statues, but to the practice itself. So every time you meditate or practice mindfulness or embody these qualities, then you're paying homage to the Buddha, as he said to, um, you know, by practicing what he taught. And you don't need a statue. And if you have a statue, you it can, he can have an Ultraman helmet on or a Boba Fett helmet. He can be flipping a bird. You can break his head off and put it, put it in his lap. Um, you know, in Western culture, it's nice, like very common when you come into a practice hall. If there's a Buddhist statue in that hall, when you enter, you take your shoes off, you bow, and 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 that's common. But it is not required by the Buddha. Um, 
And if you do it, you're not doing it to the statue. You're doing it to the practice and the teachings that you're there to learn. Um, so that's something really good for us to remember. And, and you know, Bree and I, one time we went to uh, the Breathing Heart Sangha downtown. Uh, uh, Al Lingo runs that Sangha. It's a Thich Nhat Hanh group. And, you know, we went and we, we loved it. And one time I went there and he had in the middle of their rug, similar to what we have here, he had the candles out and all of that. And he had this smashed up plate laying there. It was like some sort of decorative plate that had been broken into several pieces. And, and I asked him, I already knew the answer before I asked it, but I asked, I said, I said, you know, what, what gives? And he said, he said, oh, well, that's been on my wall. It's like some Buddhist plate that he got for something, some, somewhere, some decorative thing he got. And he's like, it's been on my wall forever. And somebody bumped into it and it smashed. And he said, uh, instead of throwing it away, I thought it was a good indicator of impermanence. And so we, we put it out here. And I was like, that's just beautiful. You know, I really love that. And one time I was, I used to, on my way to work every day, I used to stop at the Starbucks up on Sugarloaf. And, um, and at that Starbucks in those days, they had these big, huge potted plant tree things out front. There was two or three of them out in front by the doors. And they're really pretty little trees, ficus or something, and big, giant ceramic pots. And one day I went up there and one was gone. And over in the, there, there's a little piece of land in the parking lot, like between the sidewalk and the parking lot, there's this one little spot where there's like a little triangle, barely big enough. I mean, it's not as big as this space in front of me here. And the plant was planted in that little piece of earth. It's the only piece of earth around there. It's a parking lot. And it was planted in there. And all of the broken pieces of the pot were in there too. And I went inside and my friend uh, Alper is the manager there. And I went in and I said, Alper, what happened to the plant out front and how come it's planted out there? And he said, well, somebody jumped the curb and smashed the, the thing with their car. And then he said, I didn't want to throw it away. I didn't want to kill the plant. So I planted it out there and put the stuff. Starbucks got wind of it and they made him move it. But, uh, but I thought that was beautiful. I thought what a, what a great way to like not only save the plant, but take and use those broken shards of that thing as well. And I thought, what a amazing, you know, um, you know, homage to impermanence, you know. And so those kinds of things, I think, are, can be really valuable in the practice. And that's why when I have a Buddha statue whose head breaks off, like my skeleton one at home, I just keep using it and I use it as a symbol of impermanence. So that's really all I had to say tonight. So thank you. Thank you, anybody watching for attending. I hope that you got something useful out of it. As the Buddha said, you know, uh, learn, master, and remember respect, friendship, discipline without force, happiness, and sticking with the practice. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.
You're still here? It's over. Go practice. Go. Chicka